Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 27, the Brooks Sumner Affair, the closest thing to a murder ever to happen on the U.S. Senate floor. May 22, 1856. 37-year-old Congressman Preston Smith Brooks waited impatiently outside the doors of the Senate chamber. Inside, legislators gathered up their papers and made their way to the exits. But the man for whom Brooks was waiting remained stubbornly at his desk, writing letters. It became apparent that if Preston Brooks wanted to see Senator Charles Sumner, he was going to have to do so on the Senate floor. There were a few women in the chamber that day. Like a gentleman, Brooks waited until they left. He had things on his mind he didn't want any ladies to hear or see. Eventually, the chamber was nearly empty. Only a handful of men remained, including Senator Sumner. Brooks made his move. He limped into the Senate chamber, relying on his gold-tipped hardwood cane to keep him upright. Soon, he was directly in front of Senator Sumner's desk. What happened next left Sumner near death, and the United States more divided than ever before. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, Just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. One single action rarely starts a war. By the time two parties are so divided that they're willing to fight to the death, there tends to be a catalog of history between them. Yet for major wars, we almost always associate their beginning with a particular inciting incident. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the Boston Tea Party, Pearl Harbor, September 11th. And in the case of the American Civil War, the caning of Senator Charles Sumner. While the Civil War officially began almost five years later, 
the Brooks Sumner affair pushed a divided America past the point of no return. If the two opposing legislators couldn't rise above violence, then neither could the North and South. One final note. This episode includes discussions of slavery, sexual abuse, and assault. This material may be disturbing to some listeners. Much like the divisions between North and South, the differences between Preston Smith Brooks and Charles Sumner started years before they met on the Senate floor. Let's start with Charles Sumner, who was born prematurely on January 6, 1811 in Boston, Massachusetts. He and his twin were both born so weak that his mother separated them to give each baby a better chance at survival. Charles stayed with his mother while his twin, Matilda, was raised by a wet nurse. His father, Charles Pinckney Sumner, was an attorney, but his legal practice never really took off. By the time his preemie twins arrived, he was barely making a living. As a father, he was strict and overbearing, which was ironic given his moral standards were close to those of a 19th-century hippie. He even famously published a poem criticizing slavery. His anti-slavery views put the family constantly in the local spotlight. So he expected his children to be as steadfast as possible. Charles spent his childhood laser-focused on winning his father's approval, which was a near-impossible task. When Charles Jr. focused on his studies, his father complained in letters to friends that his son was, quote, somewhat deficient in strength. When he spent more time on exercise, he was then admonished for missing classes. Growing up, Charles couldn't relate to his siblings, had no hobbies, and rarely if ever dated. He was nicknamed Gawky Sumner by the few friends he did have. When he started law school at Harvard, he made a few new pals. Among them were future Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and famed poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. They appreciated Sumner's gift for oratory, yet his profound lack of social skills was unavoidable. His ignorance of humor and irony was downright painful. Holmes said, If one told Charles Sumner that the moon was made of green cheese, he would controvert the alleged fact in all sincerity and give good reasons why it could not be so. By 1834, when 23-year-old Sumner was admitted to the bar for what we might today call a fragile ego, he was always convinced he was right and would argue for hours. Even the friendliest of teasing could shatter his composure. All this clearly embittered him. When his friends fell in love and married, instead of congratulating them, he complained about his own loneliness. Luckily for Sumner, he could channel his frustration into the next best outlet, politics. Ironically, given their terrible relationship, Sumner and his father did share political views. One year after his father died, in 1840, he announced his desire to become an active abolitionist. From that moment on, Charles Sumner was on a collision course with another future politician, Preston Smith Brooks. Of South Carolina. As with Charles Pickney Sumner, Whitfield Brooks was unimpressed with his son Preston, though for different reasons. The Brooks family owned multiple large plantations in South Carolina, 
each one worked by dozens of enslaved people. There were expectations for a young man from a wealthy Southern family, and from a young age, Preston was intent on bucking them. In 1837, at the age of 18, he left home to attend South Carolina College. Yet by 1838, he was suspended for menacing another student with his pistol during a fight. Whitfield Brooks wrote in his journal that Preston was, quote, deficient in moral energy and too indulgent in mere physical gratifications. He advised his son that, quote, the spiritual man must overcome the more corporeal. Preston didn't listen, nor give up his corporeal delights of drinking and raising hell. In 1840, the year he turned 21, someone told him, falsely as it turns out, that his brother was being unfairly held in prison. He rushed over to the jail, whipped out his firearm, and threatened to shoot the sheriff. He did not, according to the historical record, threaten to shoot the deputy. But Lore often favors that version of the story. This time, Preston was expelled from college. He would never receive a degree. Shortly after his expulsion, Preston learned that his cousin had been killed in a duel with a hot-headed drunken lawyer named Louis Wigfall. Southern white masculinity then operated on a strict code of honor. If a man's family was harmed, not retaliating was the ultimate act of cowardice. So, Preston challenged Wigfall to a duel of their own. Dueling was technically illegal, though still common. So they made arrangements to meet on a tiny remote island in the Savannah River. On the first shot, both Preston and Wigfall missed. They drew again and fired again. This time, both men fell. Those watching couldn't tell for agonizing minutes if one, both, or neither was dead. Alas, both men lived, but Preston was severely wounded in his left hip. From that point on, he had a permanent limp and used a heavy gold-tipped cane. After this very public embarrassment, Brooks became even more desperate to prove his manhood. Six years later, he got another opportunity. In 1846, when he was 27, the Mexican-American War broke out. His cousin, a colonel in the South Carolina Volunteers, suggested he might be able to skip a few low ranks and join as a captain. Brooks accepted immediately. The South Carolina Volunteers got their name because none of the men were drafted. The earnings were meager, just $7 a month for a private a little under $250 in 2020. It was nothing compared to the Brooks family plantation's earnings, but Brooks was putting masculinity over money. He wanted to prove once and for all that he could fight like a man. On the long march to Mexico, Brooks didn't want to be treated differently because of his limp. He refused to ride in a wagon. Soon, he became exhausted and contracted typhoid fever. Before even reaching Alvarado, he was put on sick leave and sent back home. Brooks never saw battle. He blamed his cane for ruining his chance at wartime glory. Years later, after its starring role in a brutal beating, that very cane would become the ubiquitous symbol of Southern independence. To the North, though, it was proof that secessionists understood only 
the language of violence. That's up next. Now back to the story. In the 1840s, future Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts and future Congressman Preston Smith Brooks of South Carolina hadn't yet met. Yet they'd both already made decisions that put them on the path to Washington politics and ultimately to their explosive conflict. Sumner was a lawyer and budding abolitionist with a gift for oratory. He was also busy rubbing elbows with Boston's political, legal, and literary elite. Though his social awkwardness and raging ego had kept him single, his friends, including two future Supreme Court justices, appreciated him for his intellect and moral backbone. Brooks, on the other hand, was the troublesome son of a family of wealthy slave-holding planters, recently injured in a duel. Despite his privilege, he always felt a deep yearning to show that he could have fought his way to the top if he had to. He tried to prove himself by joining the South Carolina Volunteers, intending to fight in the Mexican-American War. Unfortunately, he was sent home on sick leave without ever seeing battle. Brooks's younger brother, however, fought and died during the war. While Brooks grieved his brother genuinely, it stung to hear how their father eulogized him, saying, quote, I lost the noblest son that a father ever raised. His brother's death was something of a reckoning for Preston Smith Brooks. At almost 30 years old, he started paying more attention to local politics. In 1851, the Civil War was looming on the horizon, and the two candidates campaigning for the 4th District seat in Congress were both vocal secessionists. That left moderates looking for a candidate they could get behind. Brooks was a lifelong Democrat, the more pro-slavery party at the time. But after feeling cursed by the Mexican-American War, he wasn't eager to participate in a civil war. Both his moderate perspective and his military service appealed to his peers. With his fellow Southern gentlemen asking him to run, he soon agreed. Back up north in Massachusetts, 1851 was also a cataclysmic year for 40-year-old Charles Sumner. He wanted to seek elected office. Neither the Democrats nor the Whigs were anti-slavery enough for Sumner, the abolitionist attorney now known for his fiery speeches. Enter the Free Soil Party. A faction of the Whigs deemed the Conscience Whigs were as fed up as Sumner about their party's complacency toward the expansion of slavery into new U.S. states and territories. Even the Free Soilers didn't think the South would give up slavery without a war. But they were insistent that, as the United States expanded, the practice of slavery shouldn't do the same. While Charles Sumner wanted full abolition, the Free Soil movement was acceptable enough for him to join. He soon became their attack dog. Sumner was a large, imposing man with a booming voice. More importantly, he was willing to say almost anything in a debate. Just as he didn't understand jokes or irony, he couldn't fathom that certain insults were generally off-limits in polite society. While the Whigs hated him, voters responded to his aggressive rhetoric. Sumner and his Free Soil friends managed to form a coalition with the Democrats, 
and seized control of the Massachusetts state legislature. As his reward, Charles Sumner was put forward in January of 1851 by the Free Soil Party as their nominee for the United States Senate. Three months later, he won. Sumner might have been a popular firebrand in Massachusetts, but in Washington, D.C., no one warmed to the Free Soiler from Boston. He was only the third Free Soiler elected to the Senate. Both the Whig and Democratic senators were so openly hostile to him that Sumner didn't make a major speech until more than a year into his term. When he finally did rise to speak on August 26, 1852, of course, Sumner focused on the issue of slavery's ongoing expansion. He spoke for more than three hours, arguing that the Fugitive Slave Act, which required free states to return escaped slaves to their former masters, was unconstitutional, immoral, and frankly, satanic. Again, let's remember that even Sumner's, quote, radical stance only called to halt the expansion of slavery. His position was already a compromise designed to prevent war. And yet, Sumner quickly became hated in the Senate for his so-called extremism and refusal to compromise. Meanwhile, also in 1852, Preston Smith Brooks was in a three-way race to represent South Carolina's 4th District in Congress. He was no shoo-in. Running as a Democrat, Brooks was the most moderate of the three candidates. That's a dangerous position to occupy during politically polarized times when voters tend to gravitate towards extremes. When all the ballots were counted, Brooks was pleasantly surprised to find himself elected to Congress. He only got 32% of the vote, but with so many candidates in the field, that was enough to win by a good margin. As with Charles Sumner, Brooks was filled with conviction. He too planned to fight for his beliefs in the legislature. Unlike Sumner, though, his beliefs were appalling. Brooks considered slavery to be beneficial to all involved, praising it as, quote, the greatest of blessings to this entire country. He was proud to hold some 80 enslaved people laboring on his own plantation, who were valued at over $50,000. That's over $1.5 million today. When Northerners commented on race relations in the South, Brooks had a well-worn response. If you wish either of us well, let us alone. By us, Brooks meant both slaveholders and enslaved people. He thought of Northerners as ignorant meddlers. Brooks was incensed by abolitionists like Charles Sumner. At least they didn't sit in the same chamber. With Brooks taking his seat in Congress and Sumner continuing to serve in the Senate, the two men didn't have to work together. Then, around 1856, came bleeding Kansas. As that territory sought admission to the Union, pro-slavery forces from Missouri invaded, voting illegally in the territorial election and threatening judges with weapons. You might remember Kansas' rocky road to statehood from our previous episode on the Kansas territorial election. If not, it suffices to say that Missourians would stop at nothing to make Kansas a slave state. 
Senator Sumner resolved to put a stop to this violence in the only way he knew how. He was going to orate until he was blue in the face. Perhaps after he unleashed a torrent of political analysis, his colleagues would see the light. If not, at least he'd know he did his very best to save Kansas from pro-slavery violence. In early May of 1856, Sumner took up his pen and began writing a speech unlike any he'd given before. Later published as a book, it covered a whopping 112 pages. The central theme of the speech, entitled Crime Against Kansas, was sexual assault. He fully intended to levy a serious accusation that the Southerner desire to expand slavery was born out of sheer perversion so as to sexually abuse more enslaved people. He even planned to accuse some of his colleagues by name. Senator Andrew Pickens Butler, for one. The South Carolinian was Preston Smith Brooks' second cousin and one of the Senate's most vocal defenders of slavery. Word got around Washington that Charles Sumner would be giving a salacious and fire-breathing speech on May 19, 1856. When that day finally arrived, the Senate viewing gallery was packed with audience members waiting for a show. But the bloody grand finale would come three days later. That's up next. Now, back to the story. On May 19, 1856, 45-year-old Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner rose from his seat on the Senate floor to begin his Crime Against Kansas speech. There was great anticipation from the public to hear him condemn slavery. Unusually, a number of society ladies had traveled to the Senate to hear the speech. Also in the viewing gallery, Preston Smith Brooks, the 37-year-old congressman from South Carolina. Leaning on his gold-tipped cane, he watched as Sumner licked his lips and began. Sumner spoke for three hours on Monday, May 19th. During that time, he introduced his overarching theory that, quote, nothing can come out of nothing, and there is absolutely nothing in the Constitution out of which slavery can be derived. In modern English, no more compromises. Slavery is unconstitutional in its entirety. After laying out his case against slavery nationwide, and more specifically in Kansas, Sumner went on to the most inflammatory section of the speech. Personal attacks against South Carolina Senator Andrew Pickens Butler, who was at home recuperating from a stroke. Whether he expected Butler's absence is uncertain. This section of the speech includes its most famous quotation, referencing Senator Butler. He has chosen a mistress to whom he has made vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the eyes of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. His implication was clear to all who gathered in the chamber. Sumner was accusing one of his fellow senators of sexually assaulting enslaved people. In the viewing gallery, Senator Butler's second cousin, Preston Smith Brooks, tightened his grip on his cane. 
At first, he questioned his own hearing. Even a firebrand like Sumner wouldn't say that about a man who was recuperating after a stroke, currently unable even to swallow his own saliva. Congressman Brooks left the Senate viewing gallery that day mystified, angry, and probably a little tipsy. Allegedly, his lifelong love for the bottle hadn't waned over the years. According to the same Southern man's code of honor that had once compelled him to duel a stranger, Brooks felt obligated to avenge the attack on his second cousin. But he'd learned a thing or two from his hot-headed youth. He waited to act until he could read over a printed copy of Sumner's speech and confirm what he'd heard. Meanwhile, on May 20th, 1856, Charles Sumner rose again from his seat to finish his Crime Against Kansas speech. In the final two hours of the speech, he not only redoubled his attacks on Senator Butler, but expressed his disdain for the entire state of South Carolina. Luckily, Preston Brooks wasn't there to hear that part. After the speech, the Senate stenographer made copies of Sumner's remarks available to members of the legislature. Preston Smith Brooks was soon delivered a copy. For the next two days, he read over and over it, hardly sleeping, trying to decide what to do. Finally, after reading the speech in its entirety multiple times, Brooks concluded that his second cousin, Senator Butler, indeed had been attacked in a way that questioned his entire moral character. If he was able, Butler would be honor-bound to fight Charles Sumner. But Butler was fighting for his life after his stroke, so the task of defending his honor fell to his nearest able relative, Congressman Brooks. So, on May 22, 1856, 37-year-old Preston Smith Brooks waited outside the Senate chamber to ambush 45-year-old Charles Sumner. Brooks's companion, Lawrence M. Keat, was there too, egging him on. Once the Senate floor was free of ladies, Brooks barged in. He stomped over to Senator Sumner's desk with the aid of his heavy cane. Brooks would later give conflicting reports about this moment. In some statements, he said he always intended to beat Sumner on behalf of his second cousin. In others, he says he only meant to give him a stern talking to and got carried away. Either way, he began by greeting Sumner with the words, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is a libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Sumner, in an effort to acknowledge Brooks, began to stand to greet him. Before Sumner could rise, Brooks swung his gold-tipped cane and brought it down on his skull. That very first blow made Sumner so disoriented, he fell back into his chair. Then, instead of pushing his chair back to get away, he kept trying to stand with his knees still stuck under the desk. Senate desks are, by the way, bolted to the floor. It's clear in retrospect that Sumner was concussed from the moment Brooks first hit him. Once the beating began, it didn't stop. In under a minute, Brooks delivered 30 ferocious blows to Sumner's head, face, and body. A handful of Southern senators goaded him on, shouting, Go, Brooks, and give the damned abolitionist hell! 
acting on pure animal instinct and blinded by blood dripping into his eyes, Sumner ripped his bolted-down desk out of the floorboards. But even that feat of strength wasn't enough to stop the beating. Brooks wailed away at Sumner until his cane splintered and broke apart in his hands. Even after Sumner collapsed unconscious, Brooks picked him up by his lapels to continue beating him. The South Carolina representative later insisted he didn't want to take Sumner's life. He chose the cane as his weapon specifically to avoid becoming a murderer. Perhaps that's true. But Brooks came within inches of beating a man to death, all in defense of slavery. The head trauma Senator Sumner suffered that day was severe. In an age before MRIs, we can't know exactly how bad his brain was damaged, but he suffered severe headaches and nightmares for years. One doctor diagnosed him with spinal cord damage. He also endured extreme psychological distress after the attack. It's obvious through a modern lens that Sumner had severe PTSD. He became so affected that he couldn't bear to enter the Senate chambers, even after his physical wounds had begun to heal. As for Preston Smith Brooks, he was the new hero of the American South. The Richmond Whig, a pro-slavery paper, wrote, A glorious deed, a most glorious deed. Mr. Brooks of South Carolina administered to Senator Sumner, a notorious abolitionist from Massachusetts, an effectual and classic caning. We are rejoiced. The only regret we feel is that Mr. Brooks did not employ a slave whip instead of a stick. The Richmond Examiner even called for more violence against other senators, writing, Good, good, very good. The abolitionists have been suffered to run too long without collars. They must be lashed into submission. If need be, let us have a caning or cow hiding every day. Of course, northern newspapers vehemently disagreed. The Boston Bee wrote, Brooks ought to be mercilessly kicked from one end of the continent to the other. Still, back home, Brooks was invited to parties across South Carolina in his honor. He was handed trophies for his treatment of Senator Sumner, an engraved silver goblet here, a silver serving platter there. At every event, someone inevitably offered him a brand new cane to replace the one he'd broken over Sumner's head. Pretty soon, Brooks had so many canes, he ran out of room to store them. If being celebrated for beating a man half to death on the Senate floor bothered Brooks at all, he certainly didn't show it in his letters. He wrote to his brother that the fragments of the stick are begged for as sacred relics. He later added that it would not take much to have the throats of every abolitionist cut. As for punishment, there was little. Brooks had been convicted of assault, but only fined $300. He never served any time for the vicious attack. While the Senate later appointed a select committee to investigate the matter, it determined that the Senate couldn't punish a congressman. Its only recommendation was that the House expel Brooks. On July 14, 1856, the House gamely took a vote on expulsion, but it fell short of the two-thirds majority needed to expel a congressman. 
With 121 ayes to 95 nays, though, the expulsion measure had a clear majority. Brooks was embarrassed enough to resign the next day on July 15th. The South wouldn't have its hero scorned. In the special election held in South Carolina to fill his seat, Preston Brooks was sent straight back to Congress. In November of 1856, he was re-elected for another full term. Brooks had everything and nothing. His support in the South could keep him in Congress forever. Yet he was so unpopular in the North that he now feared for his life and refused to travel through any free state. Feeling trapped, he weighed his options. He was approached by several of his friends about potential positions within a seceded Confederate States of America. He was even floated for Confederate president. Someone suggested, probably in jest, making him emperor instead. If fate hadn't stepped in, Brooks might well have been offered one of those positions when the Civil War came. But in January of 1857, he developed a sudden and severe case of croup, a viral throat infection. Despite his doctor's best efforts, Preston Smith Brooks died in Washington, D.C. on January 27, 1857, at the age of 37. He was celebrated by Southerners in death just as he had been in life. Thousands turned out to pay their respects both in the nation's capital and at home in Edgefield, South Carolina. As for Charles Sumner, he might have been feted as a hero in the North if he'd healed enough to attend parties honoring him. But when Preston Brooks died, Sumner was just barely beginning to mend. His head still throbbed but at least his wounds from the caning had stopped leaking pus. Though he was unable to return to the Senate, Massachusetts re-elected Sumner anyway. His fellow Republicans made sure that one seat sat empty for him on the chamber floor. It served as a nice visual point for rhetorical arguments about the uncivilized violence of Southerners. It was a near miracle when in 1859, almost three years after he was nearly killed at his desk, Sumner did finally return to the Senate. Colleagues warned him that he might be a target for Democrats looking to gain the same popularity as Brooks. Still, he refused to tone down his abolitionist rhetoric. In one of his first speeches after his return, Sumner shouted, Say, sir, in your madness that you own the sun, the stars, the moon. But do not say that you own a man endowed with a soul that shall live immortal when the sun, moon, and stars have passed away. Today, nearly no one would disagree with that statement. But in 1859, giving such a speech on the Senate floor went beyond political courage. Senator Sumner had real reason to fear for his life if he continued advocating for abolition, and he did it anyway. In the years that followed, both the deceased Brooks and the living Sumner suffered a fate familiar to anyone who's gone viral. They became symbols rather than human beings. Brooks was the avatar of the South, fed up with Northerners and ready to fight. Sumner embodied the North, preferring words to weapons. Yet he was willing to endure violence if necessary rather than give up his morals. 
Together, they symbolize the irreparable divide between North and South and the inevitability of war. Essentially, both men became memes, the first memes ever to start a civil war. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 26 about the FBI sting operation known as Abscam. Among the many sources we used in researching this story, we found the book The Caning, The Assault That Drove America to Civil War by Stephen Puglio particularly useful. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>